Good morning, church. Please turn with me to, in your Bibles, to Habakkuk chapter 1. We'll finish up chapter 1, go into chapter 2. That's page 785. The Bible's provided for you in the pew, 785. Habakkuk 1, we'll read verse 12 through 2, 3. We read all of this last week. We only pick up in chapter 1, verse 12. Sarah has reminded us of what's happening in this book. It is this conversation, sometimes a very angry one, from Habakkuk's perspective toward God. Habakkuk is complaining. Just a little review of Old Testament history in 721, Israel, the northern tribes of Israel, 10 of them, were carried away or destroyed, taken away, dispersed by Assyria. That nation was destroyed, 721, Assyria. That left only the southern kingdom of Judah. That is the kingdom to which Habakkuk is, has been sent as the prophet. God is warning them, if you don't turn back, I'm going to discipline you. And Assyria was reigning at the time, but Babylon was on the move. And Babylon was going to conquer Assyria. And they had already taken Nineveh. They were going to become the new world power. Habakkuk was happy about that. But he said, I'm also going to use Babylon to discipline you. If they don't repent, I'm going to discipline them and take them into captivity for 70 years. They'll come back. Messiah will come through the line of Judah. But discipline is coming. And Habakkuk is okay with God punishing and doing away with the enemies, those who are even worse, he thought than Israel. But that kind of discipline, that kind of judgment against his own people, that was too much for him. And he's letting God have it. He's letting God know exactly how he feels about that. And all of this is written down by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for us, for our encouragement for how we pray when we doubt. We begin reading in verse 12, Habakkuk chapter 1. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. But, O Lord, you have ordained them, the Babylonians, as judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net. He makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? 
I will, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And God answers, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray together. <clears throat> oh Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to see wonderful, shocking things in your word. But we pray mostly that you would open our eyes to see Jesus. He would open our eyes by faith. Some of our eyes shut by unbelief. Some of us have shut our eyes again. Some of our eyes are clouded with tears. Some of our eyes have beheld horrible things, traumatic things, things that have robbed us of joy and robbed us of confidence, robbed us of peace. Open our eyes that we might see Jesus in his word. In Jesus' name we pray it. God's people said together, amen. The 70th anniversary of Kristallnacht. Kristallnacht was the, that horrendous night, the beginning of the Holocaust. November 9th, 1938, the 70th anniversary of that in 2008, PBS aired a special, a mini-drama created by two Christians, Mark Redhead and Frank Cottrell, who wanted to make a memorial, a lament to that night and the Holocaust that would follow over the next several years. And the, the inspiration for their, their mini-drama was from the many conversations they had had with rabbis who related to them a long history of rabbis arguing with God, something Christians are not so accustomed to, not always comfortable with, but a long tradition in the rabbinic tradition of arguing with God, taking up a case with God. It was, uh, it was also inspired by something they had heard from Elie Wiesel when he spoke on one occasion in New York. Elie Wiesel was a survivor of Auschwitz, and he said that on an occasion he was, he was working alongside a rabbi in the concentration camp, and the rabbi said, I really long to bring God before a tribunal of rabbis for questioning and even if he is not convicted, even if he is not pronounced guilty, I want him to answer for this suffering we are enduring. The mini-drama opens this way. It's in modern times. It's in 
the current day of some visitors, some tourists who make their way to Auschwitz to, to tour it as you can today. And, and someone in the group uh, brings up uh, the, 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 the story they've heard about uh, God on trial. That is the name of the mini drama. And uh, the, the, the night that God was put on trial, and then as they broach that subject, the camera cuts away and it's back in that time. And there you are in the barracks with the Jewish prisoners. And a new group of prisoners has been brought and they're overcrowding the barracks. And so the next day, they know a number of them are going to be put into the gas chamber and, and they decide this is the night, this is the night that God is going to be put, we're going to put God on trial. So a presiding judge is elected among them. He's a, a, a German, he was a German judge and uh, before he was captured, he's half Jew. And so he is going to be the preside over the trial. And the prosecutor is a Jewish prisoner and his father is the defense the prosecutor begins to make his case. God has broken covenant. God has broken his contract with his people. From, from as far back as we can remember, in Egypt, in Babylon, with the Assyrians, with the, with the Romans, with Tsarist Russia, God, time after time, has switched sides. He's gone to the other side. He's broken covenant with us, and he has caused us to be persecuted, allowed us to be treated savagely. The defense argued, no, it's not that God has switched sides. It's, it's that the people of God have become unfaithful through the centuries, and, and God, to discipline them, to bring them back, allows them to go through these terrible times. The proof, he says, the proof is that we are still here. God is preserving us. Finally, a rabbi speaks up, a member of the yeshiva, and, and uh, the, uh, one who has memorized the entire Torah. He recounts chapter and verse and says, yes, the prosecution is correct. Time after time, God has switch sides. And God has switched sides here. And here is the ultimate proof. I received it yesterday. I saw it with my own eyes. As we were unloading from the train, I saw in the belt buckle of the soldier who's taking us off the train, putting us in the barracks, on the belt buckle were these words, Gott mit uns. God with us. God has sided with them against us. You feel that way? feel that God has broken his contract, maybe not with other people, but with you. And he switched sides. How long will the wicked prevail, you say, along with the psalmist? And you're in good company with Habakkuk. 
because that is the argument Habakkuk makes. Not just I am angry with you. I'm disappointed just for a time. But God, you have switched sides. You have become my enemy. What do you do when you doubt and doubt profoundly? Well, God has written down Habakkuk's story that we might follow it. How do you doubt well? Because unless you learn to doubt well, your faith will never be strong enough. If you've never pushed your faith, if you've never allowed the hardest questions to come against your faith, against the Christian faith, then how do you know it's going to hold up? How do you doubt well? You doubt well, first of all, Habakkuk teaches us by pouring it out, pouring out all your doubts to God. And when you run out of words and you don't know what to say, and God has written down words here so that you might speak to him just as Sarah says she wants her children to speak to her. Don't talk about me. Don't talk around me. Don't take it to someone else. Pour it out to me. God says, here, here is the manuscript. Say this to me, but don't quit talking to me. Pour it out. That's exactly what Habakkuk does. He says, you, you're purer of eyes to see evil. You can't look on wrong. But now you tolerate wickedness. That's who you were. But now you tolerate wickedness. You tolerate wrong. You make men like the fish of the sea. You, you've turned the world upside down. Justice has been replaced by injustice, and it's been called now. Injustice is now called justice. The whole world is totally unpredictable. You've switched sides. This kind of argument is made in other parts of Scripture. I alluded to Psalm 44 last week. Just into some of these things that the sons of Korah said to God. You have rejected us and disgraced us. You have not gone out with our armies. You've made us turn back from the foe. Those who hate us have gotten spoil. You've made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. And on and on it goes this harangue against God for switching sides for his injustice. It happens in the New Testament too. It happens in the, uh, Peter is, is relating what the Roman Christians were saying. God is slow. God is slack. God is sleeping. He's ignoring us while the Romans are persecuting us. You've even heard it on the lips of Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Pour it out to God. Why do you tolerate wrong? Why do you mistreat me? He goes on in verses 15 to 17 to say the whole creation is turned upside down. Everything that we thought we could count on. We, we thought that the, that the earth was, was stable in its foundations. 
we thought that the, that the, that the seasons were predictable. We, we thought that mankind was, humankind was made in the image of God and to, were to take dominion over the creatures. But you have now put us on par with the creatures and we are being gaffed like fish by you, alluding to the kind of warfare the Babylonians engaged in. They would put hooks through their noses and, and impale them and, 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 and hoist them up on sticks and flay them like animals. It was horrendous. You, God, are behind them. Habakkuk says all of this to God. God not only tolerates it, he writes it down to give you a script for when you don't know what to say when you're angry. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great preacher of the 19th century in England, when England was going through its revival period, another revival period. And, but Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, the greatest preacher of the era, would pack thousands uh, into the Crystal Palace to hear the gospel. Charles Haddon Spurgeon battled depression, and he was very open about it. He was very vulnerable about it in the pulpit. And, on one, and he also battled uh, uh, gout uh, and uh, other physical maladies. And one, one occasion, those things came together, his physical ailments and his depression, and he was bedridden, as he had been bedridden many times with his depression. And he said, I was, I was in my bed and, and people would try to comfort me and they would say things like, you know, sister so-and-so down the street has cancer and she's praising the Lord and here you are. Ever had friends like that? He said, finally, I, I, I sent everybody out of the room, all the people trying to comfort me. I sent them all out of the room. I said, shut the door. And he said, I said to God, thou art my father and I am thy child. And if I saw my, if I saw my child suffering as thou dost see me suffer, I would do everything I can to relieve him of his pain. I would put my arms under him to sustain him. But thou hidest thy face from me. Spurgeon said, I talked to God like Luther would. I told him what I thought. I left it there. Pour it out. Pour it out because you have a heavenly father who wants to hear from you. He delights in your prayers. He welcomes you into his arms. You know what Habakkuk's name means in Hebrew? Embrace. Here is this embracing prophet who says, run into the arms of God and pound on his chest and tell him you're angry, you're disappointed. Tell him whatever comes to mind. But then do this. I have in your bulletin. Find the steps. Let me give you another P. Pray the promises. Pour out your heart to God. Pray the promises. Look at this very interesting thing that happens in verses 12 and 13. 
Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment. You are a rock. You established them for reproof. You are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Now, those are very accurate statements about God's attributes. He says, God, you are eternally faithful. You have never broken covenant with your people. It's the same thing that, that uh, Moses and, and, uh, and, and David and, uh, and other Old Testament writers, uh, like, like David in 2 Samuel uh, 7, when he recounts that the Lord has, has never failed his people. The righteous have never been forsaken by the Lord. God has always kept covenant with his people. That's the, that's the attribute to which Habakkuk is appealing. You, Lord, you're eternally faithful. You have never disappointed your people. You've never let them down. He says that. And then he goes on to say you're sovereignly self-existent. You're the rock, O rock. You're the foundation upon which we build our faith. It's the rock that Peter will talk about in chapter 2 of his epistle. This is the cornerstone, the rock of Jesus Christ, the anchor of our faith, the one who can never disappoint us, who provides shade, who provides foundation, who provides protection. You are that rock. And then he says, you are holy. You can't look on evil. The other gods, there are other pagan gods who claim to be all-powerful, and there are pagan gods who, who claim to be eternal, and there are pagan gods who, who claim uh, to, uh, to follow through on what, they're going to, what they threaten. But there are no pagan gods who have all of that sovereignty, all of that power bound up in holiness, whereby they can never do wrong but always do justice. Habakkuk repeats all of those things, and yet he turns. It's as if he has his eyes closed. He has his eyes closed, and, and, and he, he's thinking about the attributes of God. And look what he concludes in verse 12. Oh, Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. Lord, you're holy. You're sovereignly faithful. You're sovereignly self-existent. You're eternal. Therefore, we will not die. Though the Babylonians come against us, no matter what powers come against us, you will preserve us as your people. We will not die. He says that right there. It's right there. And then it's as if he opens his eyes and says, why do you remain silent when the wicked swallows us up and make mankind like the fish of the sea? As long as he's praying... And praying the attributes of God, his faith is carried to what is realistic, what is true. But as long as his eyes, when his eyes are in his circumstances, he immediately reverts to his unbelief and his anger. You know, the, the old fathers of the church, going back to the fourth century, there's a particular... Uh, it was a student of St. Augustine. He was, uh, St. Augustine was his mentor. His name, is, his name was St. Prosper of Aquitaine. Not Accutane, but Aquitaine. St. Prosper of Aquitaine. 
And St. Prosper of Aquitaine came up with this Latin phrase that characterizes what is happening here with Habakkuk. Lex orande, lex credendi. Lex orande, lex credendi. The law, lex is law, the law of prayer is the law of belief. What he's saying is, when you pray, when your eyes are on God and praying, you will be carried to faith. Your faith comes out in your prayers no matter what you say otherwise. For instance, when you say, I don't believe that God sovereignly brings anybody to himself in salvation. You have to make the choice. But what do you do in your prayer closet? Oh, Lord, save them. Oh, Lord, bring them to faith. The way we pray reveals our belief. And the way we pray when we're praying with the Lord in view through Scripture and on his attributes, our prayers will carry us to faith again. So as long as Habakkuk is praying, his eyes are set on God and his, on his attributes, then he believes we will not die. But when he takes his eyes away and looks at what's around him, he goes back to his harangue. And what does God do? He listens. He listens to the vacillation. You ever experienced it with a child? I can't believe you're so mad at, you're so restrictive. I can't believe you're so mean. Mommy, I love you. Can I please have a lollipop? We vacillate, we were like that. So the next thing is to pray the promises of God's character over and again. And then in between, complain and go back to praying the promises. Now, the reason I had in your bulletin originally was find the steps. That comes from a story, a vignette in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. You, you really need to read that at some point in your life, this, this allegory of the Christian life. Where John Bunyan, the Puritan, imagines Christian leaving the city of destruction, going to the celestial city, and he imagines these things that are sometimes described metaphorically in scriptures literally happening. And so you know, the psalmist talks about being in a slough, being in quicksand, being in the miry clay. And so he imagines Christian going from the celestial city, uh, I mean, for the, the city of destruction, the celestial city, and, he, and one day he, he falls in the slough, and he's got this big burden, his sin on the back, the slough of despond. And he's flailing about trying to, trying to find his way out, and he, he's sinking. The, the quicksand is swallowing him up. And a man comes alongside him, his name is Help. And Help says to Christian, find the steps. The master of this place long ago carved solid stone steps into the wall of the slough that those who get caught here may find their way out, find the steps. The Christian paddled over and 
found the steps and walked out. And then Bunyan, just to make sure that we don't miss the point, has a little footnote at the bottom of the page. The steps are the promises of God. Pour out your heart to God, yes. But while you're pouring out your heart to God, leaf through the scriptures, remember your catechism, and call forth the attributes of God. Remember the promises of God. Remember the, remember the definition of the catechism. What is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And you attach those three qualifiers to every one of those attributes. My God is just. How just is he? He's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his justice. My God is wise. He knows the life that is ahead of me. How wise is he? He's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. Find the steps. Pray the promises. Charles Spurgeon said, when I poured out my heart like Luther would, this is what I experienced. Faith mastered it by laying hold upon God in his own revealed character. That character in which in our darkest hour we are best able to appreciate him. His pain didn't go away. His depression didn't immediately resolve, but he got perspective on the whole matter and didn't lose hope because he knew that God in his faithfulness and his faithful character was greater than his present circumstance. The third thing I want you to see in this text, I'll give you another P. Park yourself. Park yourself and wait. That's exactly what Habakkuk does. He parks himself on the watch post. You can imagine him harumphing after he has poured out his heart to God. And he goes to the watch post. I'm going to station myself. I'm going to look out to see what you're going to say to me, how you're going to answer this complaint. And God answers him. He says, wait. At the appointed time, my answer will come. It will not delay. The righteous will live by faith. Not just the one. Yes, the, the, the initial way to become righteous is to say, I can't be righteous on my own. Lord Jesus, take my sin. Give me your righteousness in its place. I receive it by faith. But it's even greater than that. The righteous will always live by his faith. The one who will walk righteously, the one who will walk rightly, the one who will walk in the right way is the one who will train his faith on the faithfulness of God. Is the one who will keep his eyes fixed on the ultimate proof of God's faith, faithfulness that he gave Jesus Christ. That Jesus came into this world and became a victim of the savagery that his people have experienced through the years. Even to the point of being crucified on a cross, just like the Babylonians killed people in the old day. 
driving stakes through them. Jesus submitted himself to that in order that he might begin to destroy evil from the inside out. No matter what you can't figure out, what doesn't make sense to you, you camp on that. Here's what it is to park yourself and wait. It is to camp on what you know about God, about his faithfulness, about his attributes, about the way he's acted in the past, and you apply that to what you don't know here and trust him with what you can't understand. Sing the doxology over the gaps between what confounds you and what God says is true about himself. You know, Rabbi Akaba in that story, the micro, the, the mini drama, Rabbi Akaba is the one who said, God has switched sides. I, I've seen it on the belt, belt buckle, Gott mit uns, God is with us. I've seen it. The next morning comes, and as the guards are leading the prisoners to the gas chamber, the other Jewish prisoners say to Rabbi Akaba, what do we do now? And he said, now we pray. We've poured everything out to God. Now we pray his attributes and leave the rest to him. That that after that scene, it goes back to the modern tourist. There's one Jewish man in the, in the group, and they turn to the Jewish man and they say, were his prayers answered? And he said, we are still here, are we not? I think they were. Though you can't conceive of how he is going to answer your prayers, you pray to the one who always does eventually and will do so ultimately. I've mentioned to you my own battle with depression that took me to Le Bonheur Hospital many, many times. And my dad on one occasion didn't know what to do and he we were sitting by ourselves in the living room floor and I was crying, I was so anxious and he was crying, he didn't know what to do and he, he took his favorite paper, the Commercial Appeal. He read every day of his life. He rolled it up and he said, take this and hit me with it. I don't want to hit you with it. I'm not angry at you. Just hit me with it. Get it out. So I tapped him. No, hit me with it. So I hit him again. And then like floodgates, it all started coming out, and I hit him, and I hit him, and I hit him. Until I was exhausted. And I collapsed in his embrace 
That's what Habakkuk is inviting you to do. God rolls up a scroll called Habakkuk and he hands it to you and he says, whatever it is, just hit me with it. Until you fall into my embrace, which is not theoretical and it's not metaphorical, it's an embrace by a real, live, living, human Savior who still has scars on his forehead, still has a wound in his side, still has wounds in his feet, and still has scarred hands. And someday you will put your fingers in those imprints. This will not be the answer to all your questions about human suffering. But the cross at least gives you the ground from which you will see the answer. The foundation upon which you can stand to say the answer is coming. It will not delay. If God did that for me on the cross and caused the good of my salvation and the redemption of the world to come out of that, no matter what this is, somehow he too will be eternally faithful, sovereignly self-existent, and holy. Let's pray together. What kind of what kind of father are you that you should not only allow us to speak to you this way but you should write it down that we would know how to say it You are surely the God of the covenant You are surely the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob And you are surely the God who said to your son after he said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? My son will not see decay. You raised him to life for our redemption and for our hope. Let us, Lord, by looking at Jesus Christ and all the promises of God which are yes and amen in him, regain our hope even this day, defiant hope. In Jesus' name, amen.